With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we'll have this week's almond update. But to start today, the weekly fungicide resistance management minute brought to you by Corteva. This week, we're talking about the importance of fungicides. Joining me is Daniel Abrazini of Corteva. And Daniel, Corteva's got something new coming out. Yeah, you know, we're working on a lot of uh, new fungicides at Corteva. Um, we have a current portfolio of Fontellus and others that are uh, really strong products, but we do have some coming down the pipeline uh, that we're expecting for registration probably maybe in about 2026, I would say right now. And so um, those new fungicides actually will be a new frat group for us, and uh, which is pretty exciting. And for the Pacific Northwest, it'll be really good on uh, early blight and uh, white mold and potatoes. And then also, um, you know, in other crops like wine grapes, it's looking really good on powdery mildew and uh, betrivus as well. And as, as you go down the coast, if you are doing almonds, um, also looks really good for bloom time diseases and those crops as well. So what kind of losses can growers see if they don't protect their crops? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, if you left untreated, you know, it could be hugely you know, damaging to the crop. You know, you get anywhere from, you know, minimal damage to complete crop loss. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's really important to, you know, scout the fields, um, you know, choose the proper fungicides, choose the proper frat groups um, for the diseases that you're, you know, targeting. And then, uh, you know, apply them preventatively, you know, try to get ahead of them. Always when you're trying to, you know, play catch up, the, the fungicides don't work as well. So it's really important to kind of scout the fields properly and make proper applications prior to the, the excuse me, the disease events happening. For growers who want to find out more, what's the best way that they can do that? Yeah, you know, Corteva um, has a website. If you go to uh, corteva.us backslash fungicide resistance, um, you can get more information there and, uh, you know, follow up with a lot of new products and information that we have coming out. Sounds good, Daniel. Yep, thank you. That is the Fungicide Resistance Management Minute brought to you by Corteva. A recent USDA study looks at potential stocking impacts and financial climate risks within its Livestock Forage Disaster Program. Rod Bain has more. Drought conditions can lead cattle producers to make decisions regarding the stocking numbers or liquidation of their herds. Yet, how does USDA's Livestock Forage Disaster Program mitigate those decisions? That was the subject of an Economic Research Service study. ERS's Aaron Rosenzik says among the findings... Counties that were eligible for LFP payments behaved similarly in terms of their livestock herd retention and stocking decisions as those that were less affected by drought and eligible for payments. To us, that's saying that the program is encouraging some herd retention when producers are faced by drought. Also, the study indicates federal expenses associated with LFP and mitigating greenhouse gases are expected to increase by the end of the 21st century. And how drought is defined over time could alter the current financial climate risk model of LFP. I'm Ron Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And the USDA economic researcher tells us more about the Farm Service Agency program adding livestock producers with herds in drought conditions and the reasons behind a recent study of that program. Stocking refers to the number of livestock that a given producer is holding on to. And that can be affected by drought because when a livestock producer is impacted by drought, that's going to decrease their ability to grow forage. So this would be pasture, rangeland, to support feeding their herds through those winter months when forage is not growing. So in cases where these producers are affected by drought, they may have these financial pressures to decrease their herd size. And so the Livestock Forage Disaster Program, which is administered by U.S. 
USDA's Farm Service Agency aims to alleviate some of these financial pressures by offering financial compensation to livestock producers that are impacted by drought. Drought conditions are defined by the U.S. Drought Monitor. And we at ERS were interested at looking at the impact of this program because the Farm Service Agency has spent about $12 billion in 2022 dollars between 2008 and 2022 on this program. So it was a question to us, how is this program influencing livestock producers stocking and herd retention decisions? In today's National Spotlight, the lineup for USDA's 100th edition Agricultural Outlook Forum has been announced with several plenary events set for the Thursday morning opening session. Rod Vane has more. Soon taking place, USDA's centennial edition of its Agricultural Outlook Forum with a live and virtual combination event set for February 15th and 16th, and announced and finalized the various plenary sessions. World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski says the Thursday morning program kicks off with Chief Economist Seth Meyer presenting USDA's 2024 Ag Outlook followed by Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack's keynote address. The secretary's speech will focus on what's come to be known as the whiteboard speech, where he's talking about the future of agriculture and some of the programs and policies that he's promoting to help farms prosper. There are multiple aspects to the forum's Thursday plenary session. We will have a panel discussion with some state commissioners of agriculture, learning some of the challenges that their producers are facing and some of the actions that those state commissioners are taking on the ground to promote and support the agriculture sectors across different states. That panel discussion will be moderated by our USDA deputy secretary. The panel discussion following focuses on new horizons in agriculture, how science and technology is helping the farm sector to prosper. And then a conversation with Rockefeller Foundation President Raj Shah. He will be with us along with Undersecretary Shabanda Jacobs-Young, and they're going to have a discussion about some of the big challenges currently facing the agriculture sector in the U.S. and the world, and some of the programs and policies and solutions to address those challenges. The forum's Friday itinerary starts with a panel discussion on the topic, Fostering Diverse Opportunities for U.S. Agricultural Exports. Featuring dignitaries such as Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Catherine Tai is going to be on that panel, along with the U.S. Ambassador to the Philippines and the U.S. Ambassador to Vietnam. Registration for and program details on the Ag Outlook Forum are available online at www.usda.gov OCE slash ag outlook forum. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A new USDA cattle report shows that the beef cattle herd will continue to shrink for another year. Gary Crawford has this story. Is the beef cattle industry in this country ready to reverse its current contraction phase of the cattle cycle? Is it ready to stop shrinking the cattle herd and start rebuilding it? This report is is basically pointing to the fact that it is not not ready to stop the downsizing of the beef herd. This according to Agriculture Department Livestock Analyst Shale Shagham. That's his take on USDA's new comprehensive cattle inventory report, which shows declines from January 1st a year ago in almost every phase of the cattle industry, including the inventory of all cattle and calves. We're beginning the year about 2% below a year ago, with producers retaining fewer 
heifers for a beef cow replacement. The report puts the number of cattle outside feedlots that could go into feedlots later. Right now, it's 24.2 million head. That's down 4% from this time one year ago. Let's read off some other numbers in the report. Producers reporting they had 28.2 million beef cows January 1st, 2% below a year earlier. Beef replacement heifers, just under 4.9 million head, down about 1%. The 2023 calf crop, about 33.5 million head, down 2%. So, according to Shale Shagam... The general takeaway from this report would be that the contraction is continuing and currently looks like it will be continuing through 2024. And possibly into 2025, leading to even smaller cattle numbers, lower beef production, and of course, higher cattle prices. Looking at steer price projections. You know, our current forecast is is about $178 a hundredweight for our 2024 annual price, compared to about $176 in 2023, with with some of those stronger prices really manifesting themselves the last quarter of 2024. Now, currently, USDA is forecasting beef production this year to fall 3% below 2023, but that number may have changed by the time you hear this. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with more Livestock News. In today's Livestock News, the Fair Labels Act of 2024 was introduced last week in Congress. Leading the introduction was Congressman Mark Alford of Missouri. The bicameral and bipartisan bill is aimed at increasing transparency in food labeling. Ensuring consumers have accurate information about plant-based and cell-cultured protein products when making nutrition and purchasing decisions is the goal of this legislation. According to a release from the American Sheep Industry Association, this legislation includes enhanced clarity. The act defines imitation meat and imitation poultry to help consumers easily identify plant-based protein products that visually resemble or are represented as meat or poultry, but are derived from plant sources. Authority and Inspection, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, will oversee the labeling of these products, working alongside the Food and Drug Administration to maintain product inspection standards. Labeling requirements, product labels will be required to use terms like imitation or similar descriptors along with a clear disclaimer if the product does not contain meat or poultry. Definition of cell cultured products. The act provides a clear definition of cell cultured meat and poultry products ensuring that labels accurately reflect lab grown food sources. Regulatory framework confirmation. This legislation confirms the shared jurisdiction of the FDA and USDA in overseeing lab grown meat and poultry solidifying the cooperative agreement for labeling. In other livestock news, the Bureau of Land Management and the United States Forest Service have announced 2024 grazing fees. For 2024, the grazing fee for both BLM and USDA Forest Service managed lands remained at $1.35 per animal unit month. An animal unit month or head month treated as equivalent measure for fee purposes is the use of public lands by one cow and her calf, one horse, or five sheep or goats for a month. The newly calculated grazing fee takes effect March 1st. The fee will apply to nearly 18,000 grazing permits and leases administered by the BLM and nearly 6,250 permits administered by the Forest Service. Congress established the formula for calculating the grazing fee through the 1978 Public Rangelands Improvement Act, and it remained in place following a Reagan administration executive order in 1986. Under that order, the grazing fee cannot fall below $1.35 per animal unit month or head month, 
and any increase or decrease cannot exceed 25% of the previous year's level. The figure is then calculated according to three factors, current private grazing land lease rates, beef cattle prices, and the cost of livestock production. In effect, the fee rises, falls, or stays the same based on market conditions. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. A collaborative study between the ag tech startup My Animal and the U.S. Department of Agriculture demonstrated the efficacy of My Animal's AI driven technology in predicting cattle illnesses. Using proprietary facial recognition and deep learning, the technology accurately predicted bovine pink eye 99.4% of the time days before veterinarians could detect symptoms. The technology identifies subtle changes in a cow's muzzle using facial recognition software and inexpensive cameras. Collaborating with the USDA, a study involving 870 beef cattle demonstrated these systems' effectiveness during the summers of 2021 and 2022. Early detection of bovine pink eye is crucial for healthy herd management, allowing producers to separate sick animals, control spread, and use antibiotics before large outbreaks. During a recent Health and Human Services Summit, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack highlighted how the ag sector contributes to health and nutrition. Secretary Vilsack explained the role of incentives and increasing diversity in production as key components. It's important for us to increase the supply, and that means sending a message to American agriculture of the importance of diversification of crop production and figuring out creative ways to help farmers and ranchers diversify, help them extend their growing season so that there is a greater supply. And that's why you're seeing the USDA engaged in a variety of programs to help small and mid-sized producers diversify. You're seeing us invest in climate-smart commodities, encouraging farmers by providing them the resources to embrace conservation practices and then providing a value-added opportunity for them at the end of it. It's also why we're focused on creating a stronger local and regional food system. Education is one of the best ways to get the most out of crop protection materials. Cooperative Extension Specialist in Plant Pathology, Akeep Eskelin, said understanding how materials work is critical for ensuring maximum efficacy. So when you go for the preventative, it's sometimes in your mind that mixing everything will give you the better production. No, that's not the case. What I would suggest is, please, when you are deciding what to apply, learn. Educate yourself. What is the mode of action of this product? If it is synthetic, how does it work? If it is biocontrol, how does it work? If it is organic, how does it work? With this background information, at the end, you are going to make the right decision, and that decision is going to keep you for the sustainable agriculture. Do your homework, do your education, and then after that, decide. If you have any questions, give me a call or send me an email or contact with your local farm advisors. UC Agriculture and Natural Resources and UC Cooperative Extension are hosting the Sutter Yuba Walnut Day in the coming weeks. The event is scheduled for Wednesday, February 28th at the Sutter County Veterans Hall in Yuba City. Sutter and Yuba County's Ag Commissioners will begin the meeting with a laws and regulatory update, followed by a presentation on walnut blight and management from Dr. Jim Atascavich. Other presentations will include a comparison of standard walnut rootstocks versus new rootstocks, along with monitoring and management of key walnut pests in the Sacramento Valley. 
There will also be a panel discussion on Walnut economics, and Robert Verloop from the Walnut Board and Commission will be giving an industry update following lunch. The event will conclude with an industry panel and attendee discussion. More information on the meeting is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. Sales account manager for AgroLiquid Dylan Rogers joins us today to highlight the importance of crop nutrition programs and some of the considerations when margins are already tight. That's a tough decision, you know, when markets aren't looking great and the, the bills keep adding up and the bottom line keeps getting thinner and thinner. You know, it's, it's real easy to look at that fertility budget and say, you know, I may, you know, let's go here and try to try to cut here. It's important to realize, especially in the permanent crop, when you're fertilizing a permanent crop, you're really fertilizing for next year's crop. So, you know, cutting back this year, markets come back next year, prices start looking better. Uh, if you cut back on your fertility this year, your crop may struggle next year and you may miss the boat on some of those better markets. So it's important, important to understand kind of, you know, these, uh, these permanent crops are, you've made a, you know, a 20 plus year investment and, and really keeping nutrition in those trees and keeping them rolling year after year is, is it's important. Um, also, you know, market's been down for, for a few years now. So also keep in, keep in mind if you, you know, if you cut back last year, or even the year before that. Uh, it's just a compounding effect. So if you if you miss a few years of fertility, your crop's definitely going to struggle for the next few years. Got to get those reserves built back up in the in the crop. So you know definitely putting the fuel to it, making sure you're getting sufficient amounts of each nutrient on, building those levels back up in the tree or the vine, whatever it may be. You can definitely start catching back up. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. A look at higher prices in grocery stores, that's coming up on this line of hours. Many grocery prices remain high and could go even higher, according to the American Farm Bureau Federation. AFBF economist Barrett Nelson says input costs and general inflation are among the main culprits. Across the board with our grocery prices, we're still seeing pressures from the high input costs that farmers face. That combined with the inflationary pressures that are still hanging on, are giving us this scenario where we're still seeing some prices rise in the grocery stores. The Washington Post recently reported that grocery prices have jumped 25 percent in the last four years, outpacing overall inflation of 19 percent, with sharp jumps for beef, sugar, and juice. Nelson says egg prices have been more volatile as avian influenza took a toll on bird populations last year. They've come back down as we've seen the, these outbreaks kind of dial back. But we're still seeing some supply issues due to avian influenza that have kind of driven things back up in the $2.20 average range. He says beef prices are stable for now but might hit record highs by next year based on the lowest inventory of cattle and calves since 1951. Higher processing plant and grocery store wages and post-pandemic shipping costs, plus Russia's war with Ukraine, have also spiked food prices, including for grains and vegetable oils. People are still talking about the chances of an early spring thanks to that groundhog we heard from a few days ago. But how trustworthy is a long-range weather forecast made by a groundhog in Pennsylvania? Gary Crawford searches for the answer. We interrupt this program for an important announcement. Yes, it was just days ago in the early morning hours of February 2nd when we heard this bulletin. Today is Groundhog Day. Ah, and of course, I remember the words of my friend and agriculture department meteorologist Mark Rusberg, words he had uttered many times to me over the years. Groundhog's Day is one of my favorite holidays because it gives uh, somebody else a chance to make a bad forecast. Uh, so he and I rushed up to Pontotani, Pennsylvania to broadcast the momentous event. Uh, no room there, so we had to settle for watching 
online from a motel room in Dismal Seepage, Ohio. And of course, every year, this charming and shy groundhog, he comes out into the spotlight dressed in the top hat and the tails, real tail, tap dancing and, and even singing. A groundhog and his shadow are a very famous pair. They forecast the weather together, a trick that is rare. Oh, the one little thing that bothers me when out of doors I go. Now does my shadow be great time or 16 feet of snow? Ah, yes, Mark and I were breathlessly waiting to see which it would be. Would he see a shadow, meaning six more weeks of winter, or would he not, meaning early spring? Who knows? The shadow knows. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. But anyway, even though we were in Dismal Seepage, Ohio, Mark and I decided to go online and cover the event as if we were there. Nobody would know the difference. And so in our pregame show, Mark said, this shadow business seems odd, very odd. For example, there have been years when Phil saw a shadow while there was drizzle, freezing rain, even snow coming down. How could that be? It's magic. It's magic. Uh, yes, Bugs, it is. But, Mark, I I, I wonder... Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Hold on. Listen to the crowd there in Dismal Sea. I mean, uh, Punxsutawney. They want Phil. Yes, and look, the town officials are trying to pull the groundhog out of his hole now. Oh, wait, he's out. And what is the verdict? What this weather did not provide is a shadow or reason to hide. Glad tidings on this groundhog day. An early spring is on the way! Punxsutawney Phil could not see his shadow, which signals an early spring. That is, if you believe a ground dog can predict the weather. You know, a lot of people think it's ridiculous. I, I think it's fun. So then, just for fun, Mark Brusberg, how does Phil's forecast compare to the National Weather Service's forecast for February through April? The northern tier of the United States is forecast to have near to above normal temperatures during that period. That includes the state of Pennsylvania. So at least for this region, the Weather Bureau and the Groundhog are in agreement. Records show both the Groundhog and the Weather Service end up being right about 60% of the time. So from Punxsutawney, I mean, from Dismal Seepage, Ohio, this is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. For cattle producers out there, an extended-release dewormer can make a huge difference in your cattle herd. Chad Smith has more. The well-known benefits of deworming cattle include improved reproduction, higher daily gains, and heavier calves at weaning. However, using an extended-release dewormer can be a game-changer that gives the greatest ROI. Dr. Jody Wade, a professional services veterinarian with Beringer Ingelheim, talks about when to use an extended-release dewormer. That's one of the biggest questions we get from a lot of the producers and veterinarians that are using the extended-release products. But timing wise, if you've got calves that are going to be out on an extended grazing period, and in other words, you're going to wean them and kick them out on grass for over 60 days, so they'll be out for maybe 100 to 120 or 150 days. That's where this product fits really, really nice. You don't have to go through the trouble of bringing them back up and getting another dewormer in them midway through the season. That's already taken care of with these extended release products, so it's a lot less stress and a lot better bang for your buck. He says extended release dewormers can last all season. The way they've got this thing set up, it works just like a normal dewormer with the initial injection. But the good part is, is because there's actually more product active ingredient in that injection. Some of it is sequestered in a polymer that holds that active ingredient at the 
injection site for about 70 to 90 days. And then you'll see a second release of that product just as if you went in and gave a second shot. So you get another dose of that same product 70 to 90 days out. And because of that, we get a lot better dewormer control or parasite control, as well as we save that stress of having them bring them back up and run them back through the chute again. Wade says producers may be hesitant because of the initial cost of a longer acting dewormer, but there are significant payoffs. The biggest reason is, is we got a lot more active compound in the bottle. Because there's a lot more active in there and you're actually getting two doses rather than a single dose, then you can explain away some of that initial cost up front. It is well worth the money when you look at the difference in the pounds of gain as compared to a conventional product, or if you're using it in heifers, such as replacement heifers, just to see the difference in the breeding percentages and the number of calves that are hitting the ground in that first 21 days of the calving season. Diagnostics help producers get the most out of their deworming program. The simplest way is, is make sure you get your veterinarians involved in it and make sure you you do have a good parasite control monitoring program. We're suggesting now, as well as most of the parasitologists across the country, that we go in and do routine fecals to see what the parasite load is there. And if the products that we're using in that deworming program is still being at least 90 to 95 percent effective in that particular program, because if it's not, then we need to back up and look at something else. Diagnostics plays a huge role. Don't go out there haphazardly and buy something and stick it in them. Do a little bit of diagnostic work prior to and make sure that you're getting the best product in there and getting the best bang for your buck. Again, that's Dr. Jody Wade with Beringer Ingelheim. Chad Smith reporting. This is the AgNet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. Now, here's Brian German with this week's Almond Update. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. Senior Specialist of Industry Communications for the Almond Board, Taylor Hillman, joins us today to talk a little bit about the upcoming Board of Directors election cycle. And now that's getting going here pretty quick. So, Taylor, what are industry members going to want to keep in mind right now at this point in the process? Yeah, Brian, thanks for having me. Um, It is election season actually coming up again already for the Almond Board of California. Um, Yearly, we look at some of the positions that are going to be available on the board, and that is just around the corner. February is the kickoff to this. Uh, The important thing right now is for growers to make sure that their mailing address, their physical mailing address is up to date with their handlers. Every year we get um, inquiries from growers asking about ballots and where their ballot is and how to get a ballot. And we just want to make sure that everybody has their physical mailing address up to date with handlers because that's the list that we use to send ballots to. Um, We end up using the handlers grower lists. And if those have inaccuracies in it, we are often not aware of that. So I think the big take home here is to if you're a grower, to make sure that your physical mailing address is up to date with your handler to make sure that you receive a ballot coming up in April. So the name of the game here is making sure that um, that information is is updated for an opportunity to participate here. And when is the official date? You said February, but what's the uh, kickoff date for this going to be? Yeah, that's right, Brian. So February 9th is the election cycle uh, official beginning day. And what that date is, is that this this is the day, the first day that candidate declaration can happen. So anybody who is interested in running for one of the positions on the board, this is the time to do so on February 9th. 
um, at almonds.com slash elections. You can find out all the information on how to run, but February 9th is the date that the election cycle begins. The April date, April 1st, that is when the candidate declaration window closes, and that's the last day for ABC to receive letters of intent with the grower petitions that they need to run for those positions. And the reason why it's important to look at your address to be updated now is April 22nd is that date to when we mail ballots to growers. So uh, we usually get those lists um, in April. We usually prep our mailings uh, middle of April and those ballots will be mailed out April 22nd. So you just a little over two months to make sure that your address is updated with your handler. So making sure you've got accurate information to uh, participate in this process and um, something that I'm sure we will talk about a little bit more in depth in the coming weeks. But the importance of these elections and participating in them, because this really kind of helps drive the industry, kind of focus some of what the Almond Board is doing. I mean, what's what's the importance there to cast those ballots and participate in this entire process? Absolutely. Uh, it's we represent the growers and industry members um, of California almonds. And every year the almond board conducts this election. Um, ABC encourages eligible women, minorities and people with disabilities to consider running for a position on the board of directors. We believe that all individuals from all walks of life can contribute to improving the lives of almond growers and the communities which they live in. If it wasn't for the participation we have in both our committees and our work groups and the board, um, we wouldn't be representing the growers very well. And that's our goal. So it's very important to get involved when you can. If, if you want to run for a position, again, you can find that information at almonds.com slash elections. Um, and you can find out information too, to sit on committees or workshops, to check out meetings that we have, to find out if you wanna get involved and if it piques your interest. I will say for the 2024 Board of Directors um, election, there are four open seats this year. There will be an independent grower number one, which is a one-year swing seat. There's an independent grower number three, which is a three-year term. There's an independent handler number two, which is a three-year term. And then finally, an independent handler number three, which is also a one-year swing. So four open spots, two growers, two handlers. Uh, there's a variety of positions out there that people could run for if they are interested. And I'll repeat it again. You can go to almonds.com slash elections to find out more information. Well, very good. And we will include a link to the election page at agnetwest.com uh, so that people can get more information and participate in this process. And uh, Taylor, anything else uh, left you want to cover here? Yeah, I just encourage everyone to go check out the elections page and read the information that's there. It's There's a lot of information on there for anybody that's even just the slightest bit curious. There's even some frequently asked questions um, such as uh, what qualifications are needed to run for a seat on the board or what's, what's the alternate's role on the board? Um, who's allowed to vote in the election? There's tons of information on the election process both if you are actually running for a position or just a voting member. So uh, check out almonds.com elections. Again, a plethora of information to help you through this process. Thank you, Brian. 
You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. Now for more news, a new subcommittee within a National Agricultural Advisory Board is focusing on developing further research and policy on pollinator health and conservation. Rod Bain reports. No one doubts the importance of pollinators to our quality of life. Pollinators help us as Americans enjoy the things that make our diets diverse and plentiful with fruits, nuts, and vegetables. Not to mention the floral, tree, and horticultural sites and fragrances in our daily lives, according to USDA Chief Scientist Shivana Jacobs-Young. And with threats to pollinator health, and pollinator populations increasing. We invest every year over $35 million in pollinator research. To help guide the Agriculture Department in developing pollinator-oriented policy and supporting pollinator research, a new advisory entity was formed. The pollinator subcommittee is going to help us as we work to identify the collective set of stressors that impact pollinators, including but not limited to pests and pathogens, pollinator habitat, and climate change, to name a few. The subcommittee is the latest among several, providing input within the National Agricultural Research, Extension, Education, and Economics Advisory Board. The board advises me as the chief scientist in the Department of Agriculture on research priorities, and they advise us on topics that are of high priority for the industry, and they help inform us as we build strong programs and policies. The board reflects the broad interest of food, fiber and agriculture stakeholders nationwide. They hold regional and national stakeholder listening sessions. They provide consultation to granting programs of USDA and they develop consolidated advice based on stakeholder input that is vital to the current and future success of food, forestry and agriculture programs. As far as the makeup of the Pollinator Advisory Subcommittee. This subcommittee will be made up of nine members when they're all distinguished representatives from the Pollination Services private sector nonprofit organizations and academics who research pollinator health and conservation. And so they're going to come together, I would say meet virtually several times in 2024. And we're going to make sure that we stay closely engaged. The chief scientist also recognizes the timing of the formation of the new NAREEE Advisory Board Pollinator Subcommittee. As pollinator health has been such a high priority for many of us, including the Department of Agriculture, for quite some time, and we want to better understand how to improve the health of pollinators. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Seven counties around the state remain under quarantines in battle to eradicate and stop the spread of four different species of invasive fruit flies that agricultural officials say could wreak havoc on California farms and hundreds of crops. The California Farm Bureau says the oriental fruit fly triggered quarantines in part of Santa Clara, Contra Costa, Sacramento, Riverside, and San Bernardino counties. Portions of Los Angeles County have been under quarantines due to findings of the Mediterranean, Tau, and Queensland fruit flies. The Queensland quarantine largely affects Ventura County, centered around Thousand Oaks. USDA is making another round of emergency relief program payments to eligible producers for disaster losses suffered in 2020 and 2021. Here's Gary Crawford. Farmers today face unpredictable weather disasters plus very tight or non-existent profit margins. So when it comes to getting some sort of payment from the government... Literally every little bit helps. 
Zach Ducheneau runs the USDA's Farm Service Agency, and he says most producers who received emergency relief program payments, so-called ERP payments from USDA, for disaster losses suffered in 2020 and 2021, those will be getting a little bit more money from the program. Zach says the first round of payments were made with a 75% pay factor to make sure there'd be enough money to go around. There was. So, Zach says most producers will get some sort of extra help. He says check with your local Farm Service Agency office to make sure you qualify, but in general. If you received an ERP phase one payment for 2020 or 2021, you'll receive a 3.5% payment on top of that. Meanwhile, enrollment continues in ERP for disaster losses in 2022. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Winemakers in the U.S. and abroad are struggling to sell their product, this from the California Farm Bureau, and leaders in the sector, they say, are increasingly focused on anti-alcohol messaging. Schenken, a news organization that collects data on wine, beer, and spirits, reports that 2023 was the third consecutive year of negative volume growth for U.S. wine sales, following more than a decade of flattening consumption. Some in the wine sector have traced the origin of negative health messaging around wine to a 2018 study published by The Lancet, which found there was no safe level of alcohol consumption. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.